can have a seat. Amen. Well, good morning again. How's everyone? Now I get to be nice. I am nice. I'm a nice person. I hope you received that with the love and the grace that it was given to you guys. My favorite movie when I was a kid was the 1985 Steven Spielberg classic, The Goonies. Anyone ever watched The Goonies before? Hands in the air. All right, you will all qualify for the elderly community group here at The Vine. <laughs> You'll get to meet with me later. I'm also a part of that group. The Goonies came out in 1985, and it literally changed cinema for anybody who grew up in the 80s. The reason why I think I love the film so much because it was about a bunch of boys who were relatively my age when the film came out. In fact, these boys right here. This is Chunk, that's Mikey, that's Mouth, and Data on the other end. And this film was fantastic. These four boys discover a treasure map in the attic of their house and go on this grand adventure where they discover hidden treasure and they fall against ancient curses. It was cinematic glory. Now, when the film first came out, I was far too young to go to the cinema to actually watch the film. But lo and behold, a few months later, TVB here in Hong Kong began to show The Goonies as one of its movies on rotation. But the problem was, it came on at 9 o'clock at night, and I was still too young, and my parents would not let me stay up late enough to watch the film. This was very frustrating. If you wanted to watch a film in those days, and you were a kid, and you weren't allowed to stay up, you would miss out on all of the cinematic glory that God wants you to have. You couldn't have it. All of that changed one day when my father came home from work carrying a black box under his arms, which he placed under the television. It looked like this. I thought this was something out of space. It was so cool. This, apparently, according to my dad, had the power to record anything on television so you can watch it at a later time. My dad called it a VCR recorder. I called it God. <laughs> this thing literally changed my childhood. Suddenly, all the things that I couldn't stay up late enough to watch, suddenly these were available to me at the fingertips, including The Goonies, which TVB, just a few months later, after dad brought this home, actually aired again on television. I said to my dad, would you please put a tape in the machine? Would you set the recording time? Would you capture the movie so I can come home the next day and watch it for the first time? So my dad got the tape out. He put it in. He set the recording up. It was all, I cannot tell you how excited I was to come home from school that day. I gathered all my mates from, mates from the neighborhood. We all got together. We had a little bit of popcorn. We put the tape in. We pushed play. And guess what? It was the best movie I have ever seen in my life. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything quite like it. The kids were my age. I was just like, this was worth waiting for. My favorite scene, trust me, I wore that tape thin. I watched it probably over 100 different times. My favorite scene was the very opening scene. In the very opening scene of the movie, a black SUV meanders up a very quiet cul-de-sac of a small suburban neighborhood. It drives past, very slowly, this beautiful house. The camera pans from the black SUV up to the house, and there's the main star of the film, Mikey, leaning on the windowsill of his bedroom, and he falls back on his bed, and he says the opening words of the movie. He says, oh, bummer, nothing ever exciting happens around here anyway. And it's really ironic. 
because he's about to discover a treasure map in his attic and go on this incredible journey that will change his life, but he knows nothing about that in that moment. So those opening words from the opening scene is this ironic statement about all that happens, and I thought Steven Spielberg is the greatest director and storyteller ever. Well, many years later, I'm at university, and I'm living in a house with a bunch of guys, and one night we're bored, and so we said to each other, what should we do? And I said, I know, let's rent the Goonies. And we had all watched the Goonies in our youth, but now it was years later, and we wanted to watch it again. We were so excited. Now, at that time, it was on the futuristic technology of DVD. So we rented the DVD of the Goonies. By the way, if you've not watched this film, your homework this week is to watch the Goonies. <laughs> So we get the DVD, we put it in our little DVD player, we put it in, we push play. You will never guess what happened. The film had a beginning that I had never seen. In fact, the film had five minutes in the beginning that I had never seen before. I could not believe it, and it suddenly dawned on me that my dad must have set the VCR recorder five minutes later than the beginning of the film. And so I had missed out on the first five minutes of the greatest film ever made. And let me tell you, that's not just any five minutes. It is the greatest five minutes in cinematic history because the opening of the film of the Goonies is created and designed by Spielberg to set up everything that comes next. I mean, there's, it's crazy what happens in the first five minutes that I had missed. There's a, a fake suicide in a jail cell. There's a breaking out of jail. There's a setting fire to the perimeter of the jail. And then the criminal dives into the back of a vehicle. And guess what that vehicle is? A black SUV, right? He dives into the black of this black SUV, and then they start to break out of jail. The whole police in this little town in Washington in the U.S. are trying to chase after them. And they have this massive car chase all the way through the city. And whilst the car is being chased by all the police, it introduces us to the main characters of the film. And by the way that it speeds in and out of all of the town, it destroys so many things. It eventually ends up, the black SUV, on a beach, and it's trying to get on this beach, and all the police are there, and eventually they manage to get around all of that, and then they take a left-hand turn, and they go into a small, quiet, suburban neighborhood. And they drift up the road and turn right, and the camera pans up, and there's Mikey. And he falls back on his bed, and he says the opening words of the movie. Ah, oh, bummer. I wish I'd seen the first five minutes originally. No. <laughs> he said, ah, oh, bummer. Nothing ever exciting happens here anyway. And what I thought were ironic words about what was ahead were actually ironic words about what had already happened. And the depth of those words. I mean, when he's leaning out on that windowsill and he's looking down on that black SUV, the people in that black SUV are the very ones who are about to change his life forever. And Spielberg is a master storyteller. And he weaves all of this together. And I had missed every single bit of it. And when I finally watched the film from the original beginning, the way that the storyteller wanted me to understand it, it completely changed how I appreciated that movie even more. You see, the good stories, the really good stories, always have an intentional purpose to their beginnings. And the storyteller, as they're trying to unpack these stories for you, begin in a way to shape and form a lens through which they want you to view the rest of the story. Which means when we get the beginning wrong, 
When we start the story, if you will, from the wrong place, chances are everything else in that story is going to be distorted from its original intended meaning. You have to view the story through the original lens that the storyteller wants you to approach it. Does that make sense to you? And that whole process is never more important than the story we're looking at today, the story of the plagues. The plagues are perhaps the most central element that happens in all of the Exodus story. But they are also the most controversial elements of that story. In the plagues which are captured for us from chapter 7 through to chapter 12, we see an event after event of God's awesome power on the earth, of God's judgment on the earth. And in that judgment and in that power, we see the way in which God uses various things and does various things to express his judgment. And we see in that things that we're not comfortable with. And we wrestle with these deep questions of how can a loving God be so violent? Do things like that bring that kind of judgment? I thought God was peaceful and loving and good. How would he and why would he do this? And if you just grab the Bible and you start in chapter 7 of Exodus, and you start reading the plagues, you're going to be weighed down by those questions. Because you're not actually starting in the place that the storyteller wants you to start. You see, there's, there's some very specific beginnings, intended purposes, that God has created and put in the story of Scripture up to the point of the plagues, that unless you see it through there, you're going to actually struggle deeply with the narrative. Starting in the right place with the plagues is essential for you to understand what they're really trying to say and do. Now, it doesn't necessarily suddenly, magically wipe away some of those big, deep theological questions of the violent nature of God in the Old Testament. Those things linger and remain. But seeing it through the right lens enables us to get an understanding of what God's really trying to communicate about himself, about the world, and most importantly, about you about you and your story, you and your exodus, you and the very thing that you long to depart from. And so as we open up the story of the plagues today, I want to open up to you that story through its real beginning. That beginning is found in three places, two in the book of Genesis and one actually in the book of Exodus itself. In the book of Genesis, we see right at the beginning of all things, God's creation of the world. And God's creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2 is a primary lens through which the storyteller, God and Moses in writing it down, is trying to help you to understand as you go through the plagues. What, what you see in the creation, and, I, and I've been saying this over so many weeks of this series, everything that happens in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is very much what Moses is drawing into his writing of the Exodus. The language, the imagery, the way he communicates, so much of it pulls from what he had already written in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see some critical things about how God creates. Let me show you these things. Light and darkness are separated. Creatures of the sea and land are separated. When we come to creation in the Bible, what we're seeing is God saying, I'm in power and control on creation, and when I create, I put things in their right order. There's an order to the universe, and I separate things so that they would be in their right place and in their right order. The pinnacle of this, of course, is the creation of humanity, formed out of the dust itself and breathed on by God's breath and brought into life. 
And that humanity then is given the task to multiply and fill the earth. It's like God is saying, I have ordered creation in a way. The pinnacle of that creation is humanity. And I want humanity to be a blessing to my creation. And humanity is to multiply and fill the earth and bless and steward the creation that I've given them. Which is why the final point here, harmony is secure between humanity, God, and creation. Because that harmony is God's intent and purpose. What you see at the end of Genesis 1 and 2 is God standing back and saying, this is very good. Everything is ordered how I wanted it to be, and I've created humanity so that it can walk with me in bringing harmony and peace, the biblical word shalom, to the world that I've created. And by the time you get to the end of Genesis 1 and 2, it's like there's a breathing out sigh that everything is just as it should be. Make sense? That's your first lens. Here's the second lens, the creation of Israel. This is found in Genesis 12. Let me actually read you uh, verses 2 and 3. I will make you, this is God speaking to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. This is God speaking out over Abram at the starting point of Israel as a nation. And I want you to see the critical thing here. God is focused on blessing. He's like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to form and shape you in such a way that you're going to be my blessing in the world. In other words, the harmony that is found in Genesis 1 and 2 and the way in which God creates that harmony, that is going to be seen best through how a nation works together. A little bit like how I stood before you a moment ago and said, here are some cultural things about our community that are important for the world to see the nature of God. God creates Israel as a community to represent his nature to the world. I'll bless you and you'll be a blessing. But notice, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Very important you understand this. What God's saying is out of this nation of Israel... I am going to form and shape them the way that harmony in the world should be, the way that my purposes and my promises should be. So those that bless you as a nation are aligning themselves to my purposes and promises, but those that curse you as a nation are standing against my purposes and promises. So the reason why I judge the nations of the world when I judge them is because they have moved themselves and standing against the purposes and promises I have. How you treat my people will be a representation of what's in your heart. Does that make sense? Now, that's a very important lens for us to look through as we get to the plagues. But notice one other thing here. It says, all the people on earth will be blessed through you. This is so key. Because even in the moment of the creation of Israel, where God talks about blessings and curses, relationship, and how there is judgment if things are not aligned to his purposes and promises, he then immediately provides grace. He says, all the people of the world will be blessed through this nation, even the ones who curse the nation. If they curse my people, they will be cursed, but cursings can be turned into blessings with God. Cursings can be turned into blessings with God. And so all the people and all the nations, everybody, will ultimately be blessed. Now, we know in the story that's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But here in Genesis, the idea is that through Israel will come this blessing to all nations, and God is provided both judgments and grace. Does that make sense to you? Anyone? Here's the third lens that the author wants you to look to through before you get there. It's the prologue to the plagues themselves in the book of Exodus. It's actually found, we read it last week in Exodus 7. Let me read you verse 3. This is how God declares 
the plagues. He calls them my miraculous signs and wonders. I love this. Very important you get this. God actually declares that the plagues, when he describes them at the very start to Moses and Aaron, he's like, I'm about to do all these plagues, but they are, you need to understand this, signs and wonders. That's how he describes them. They're signs and they're wonders. And this idea of signs and wonders is a very important uh, thread throughout the whole of the Old Testament. A sign was always something that happens that imparted some kind of knowledge about God. A wonder was always a supernatural event that was designed to disrupt the ordinary in order to bring a message from God. So a sign imparted some kind of knowledge. A wonder was a shaking up. We sung it in that song, shake up the ground of my tradition. Shake up the ground of my religion. That was what wonders were given for, to shake up the ground so that we might come into a re-understanding of the character and the nature of God. Do you see that? So when God himself talks about the plagues, and lays them up as signs and wonders, what he's essentially doing is, there's something you can learn about me in these plagues, and these plagues are to disrupt the ordinary so that something fresh and new, a new message of my heart will be understood. Now, here's the final thing with the signs and wonders. Signs and wonders were usually brought through prophets to the kings. You'll see this later on in the Old Testament narrative once uh, Israel settles itself into the promised land. And signs and wonders were the tools of the prophets in order to get kings to change their ways, otherwise judgment will come. So the plagues, yes, they are acts of judgment. But they are also signs and wonders provided by God to offer grace to his people and to Egypt to turn from their ways before the true final judgment comes. The plagues are actually God's way of saying, will you listen? Will you see? Will you understand the story behind the story? Or will you begin the movie five minutes in? Now, the way that Egypt had set up their film is they didn't want the movie of Yahweh at all. For them, they had come up with their own system of understanding harmony in the world. And what we see in Genesis 3 is really important because we see this in the nature of Egypt at that time. Genesis 3, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, you can take this fruit and you can eat it. And in doing so, you'll discover that there's other ways of thinking about the world than the way that God has created you to think about it. And Adam and Eve are tempted to take that fruit because they believe that God is holding out on them, that there is an alternative way of worship. And what you see, fast forward on all the years when you get to Egypt, is that Egypt is living out an empire of an alternative way of worshiping. They have a pantheon of gods that they have constructed in order to keep control over the workings of humanity. And that pantheon of gods has created an environment where absolutely everything in Egypt society was all down to the worship of various different idols in order to retain harmony in the world. Very interestingly, harmony becomes a central part to Egyptian religious belief. So when God shows up with the plagues, he's actually trying to subvert this alternative idea of worship and bring his people back to the way things had always intended to be. And he does that through some pretty dramatic things. And to help you to understand and see all of that, let me take you once again to the land of Egypt. 
The one central driving force of ancient Egyptian life was religion. The Egyptians believed in a pantheon of gods, which were involved in all aspects of nature and human society. The gods quite literally were everywhere. And in order to have a successful life for yourself and for your family, you needed to expertly navigate a complex system of beliefs and rituals, using prayer and offerings to interact with the various gods in control of the world around you. All of which meant ensuring a prosperous life for yourself and those around you, well, it was actually really exhausting. I mean, could you imagine being surrounded every day by these deities and these gods, constantly reminding yourself of your need to be in harmonious relationship with them? And it's this concept of harmony that was actually central to ancient Egyptian religion. See, core to their beliefs was a concept known as ma'ait. This was a cosmic, eternal order, a little bit similar to our modern-day concepts of truth and justice, but found in the cosmos as well as human society. And ancient Egyptians believed that their sole purpose was actually to maintain ma'ait in the universe. And they did this through their relationship with the gods, by their various offerings, their daily rituals, all of which were designed to starve off disorder and ensure harmony remained. And here is what is key in all of that. Any threat to the cosmic order was not just a threat to the person themselves, but a threat to the whole universe. And a threat like that needed to be dealt with in one of two ways, either aggressively suppressed or ideally completely wiped out. So imagine what it would have been like if you were a Jewish slave in the land at that time. I mean, you would have been raised to believe that there was only one God in the universe, Yahweh, who could hold all of Ma'ait in his hands. And yet every single day, you would have constantly been reminded that actually that is a stupid idea, that instead thousands of gods are needed to maintain harmony in the universe. And in this way, Egypt's slavery of God's people was actually more than just a physical oppression. It was a spiritual oppression as well. Everything Egypt could do was designed to mock the one central question of the whole of the Jewish faith. Could it really be that one God is able to hold the whole universe in power at one time? Well, that question and the freedom the answer brings is what the plagues are all about. And to understand that, I need to take us now back to the waters of the Nile. If maintaining Ma'ait in the universe was the primary aim of Egyptian religion, no single source of such harmony was more powerfully symbolized than by the life-giving power of the Nile River. The Nile was everything for ancient Egyptians, a source of human life through its fish for eating and its waters for drinking, and in its annual flooding, a source of cosmic life to all nature around it. The Nile was Egypt's strongest demonstration of the balance and order that existed between the gods and people. If its waters remained healthy, so would its people. It should not surprise us then that this is the very first place God calls Moses and Aaron to come in order to display his cosmic power. See, God tells Moses to instruct Aaron to stretch out his hand and staff, touch the water and turn it into blood thereby killing all of the fish and creating such a stench that people won't come to drink from here from that point forward. 
and we have to see the story behind the story here. You see, God's first act of convincing Pharaoh to let the Israelites go is designed to strike at the very heart of Egyptian religious belief. God disrupts the Ma'ites of the universe in order to demonstrate that the only Ma'ites is found in him. The rest of the plagues follow suit. Each one is a specific statement from Yahweh that he is far more powerful than any of the many gods of Egypt. So the plague of frogs is a demonstration against Heket, the frog goddess of fertility, the flies against Kepri, the fly god of Egypt, the plague of hell against Nut, the god of the atmosphere, the darkness against Ra, the Egyptian god of the sun. And with each plague comes a consistent message. This one single god, Yahweh, is the one and only true God, and all other pretenses the deity must bow down. It would be this constant display of God's power over and above the power of the gods of Egypt that would eventually soften Pharaoh's heart and bring him to his decision to finally let the Israelites go. And we see in this process and God's involvement in it something very important for all of our journeys in Exodus. You see, God understands that in order to break the chains of our physical oppression, we have to first of all break the chains of our spiritual oppression. We have to know that there is a God who's got greater power than anything in the universe, and through that, find faith rising up in us to stand against anything that attempts to chain us. See, God reveals His true power to Israel, and their journey in freedom begins. May it also be so for you. I want to help you to see that journey of freedom for you by mapping out very briefly the plagues. There are 10 of them in total. The 10th one uh, is the one that's perhaps the most shocking, the one that's perhaps the most difficult to deal with, and that's the one that we'll deal with next week, thankfully. Um, And that's all on the Passover and what God does there. But the other nine plagues that we see are actually broken into three different cycles. Let me show you a diagram. I know I told you earlier to put your phones away, but you can get them out for just a brief term and and take a photo of this slide if you would like, because this is a very helpful, uh, I'll get out of your way a little bit, But this is a very helpful slide if you want to study a little bit more around the cycles of the plagues. So as I mentioned earlier, they're found from chapter 7 through to chapter 12. What you'll see here is that there are three separate cycles of uh, in total nine uh, plagues. Uh, There are the scriptures they have particularly the Egyptian gods that each of those plagues are against and bringing a polemic against are there. But also, very importantly, God's intention about what he's trying to communicate about himself in each of those cycles. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. But I want you to see something, first of all. One of the things that God is doing through the lens that we looked at with the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2, his judgment against what Egypt are doing through their pantheon of gods is a judgment which basically results in his decreation of the world. So actually, and this is fascinating, all of the plagues are a decreation event that mirrors a creative event that happened in Genesis 1 and 2. Because what God is trying to do is basically say, I need to decreate in order to then free Israel to create again 
uh, Israel in the way that they'll be going forward. So all of these are decreative events. Let me give you an example. The frogs, remember I said that there was a separation between the, the earth, the land, or sorry, the sea and the land. There's a separation between those two things. Well, with the plague of frogs, frogs are the ones that have the ability to go on both land and in both water. And God brings a plague of frogs to cover the earth between the waters and the ground in order to deconstruct what he had done in Genesis 1 and 2. Likewise, the gnats, we're told that in the gnats plague, God takes dust and he creates the gnats out of the dust. In the same way that he had taken dust in Genesis 1 and 2 and created humanity, now he creates gnats to show the chaos that comes when you try to do things in a different way. Uh, These all follow suit. The flies, for example, uh, actually when Moses writes about the plague of flies, he says they multiply and fill the earth. The same language he uses about God's call on humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. Again, God is decreating in order to futurely create. Uh, The plague of darkness on cycle 3, again, God had separated light and darkness. Now in the plagues, God brings darkness in the middle of the day to once again deconstruct in order to say, I'm going to do things differently. And his main communication is, if you have any other form of worship, any other way of thinking about harmony, it is not true. It'll only bring more chaos, and I show you that chaos in judgment of the other form of worship that you have. Notice, though, on the right side here, God's intervention. Remember that God describes his plagues as signs and wonders. And each cycle of plagues, God is actually saying something about himself to Egypt and to Israel. In the first cycle, he says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, I'm inviting you into this intimate, personal relationship with me, and you would know that I am a true God, the one and only true God. And I do these things in order to shake up, remember, disrupt your ordinary, to bring you into a knowledge that I am the one true God. In cycle two, he says that you may know that I am the Lord, and I am in the midst of the land. This is really important because Yahweh is basically saying, I'm not some god, the the pantheon of the Egyptian gods where deities removed. God is saying, I'm in the land itself. I'm here with you. I'm not distant. I'm not on some fluffy cloud trying to manipulate the world in some way. I'm actually present and with you. I am a God who is in the land itself. And that differentiates himself from all of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. And then in cycle three, he says, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. No other God. Everything else is a pretense to authority. The only authority is me. You would know through this that I am the only God, that none of your magicians can create any of the plagues in the way that I can. I am the one true powerful God, and all other pretenses to authority must bow down. The lens through which we approach the plagues enables us to see that God is actually offering to Egypt the fullness of who he is. You don't need those hundreds of gods. You don't need to live in a stressed way where where you're trying to please everything around you. You just need me. And I'm not just distant, but I'm present. I'm in the land. And everything else submits to me. I'm the one who holds all my ites in my hands. And you can find escape from the pressures of trying to chase everything else with just your worship of me. And some of you in this room, that's a word for you. Because God is saying the same thing to you today through the plague narrative. You don't need all this other stuff. All these other little ways in which you worship. All these other little idols that you're bowing down to. 
all this other stuff of culture that you think you need to fit into in order to succeed, the only thing you need for true power, for true authority, true harmony, true peace is me. And for some of you, that's a call of God on you today. So through the plagues and all of this, what is it that the people learn? Well, here's what Egypt learns. They learn that there is one God who can hold all ma'ait in his hands, and they better bow down to that one God, otherwise things won't go well for them. And Pharaoh, his heart is hardened, and he hardens his heart with everything. His pride gets in the way, and eventually, as we'll see next week, he finally lets Israel go through the work of the Passover and the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. But all of that process is building the pressure on Egypt to see that there is only one true God that holds ma'ait in all his hands. But every single plague, there's an opportunity for them to turn. Every single plague, there's an opportunity for them to respond to this God and give their lives and their authority and their worship to him. Israel also learns a lot. They learn that after having spent so many years in Egypt, they had naturally begun to worship some of those deities of Egypt. I mean, could you imagine, like I said in the film, being surrounded by all those gods all the time? Well, you would have felt that pressure to align yourself to the culture of your time. And the plagues is a wonder to them. It's a, a thing that disrupts their ordinary and helps them to realize, hang on a sec, what are we doing? Why are we worshiping all these other gods when there is only one God, the God of our forefather of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's the God we should worship. And the plagues actually work for Israel as a shaking up of their ground so that they can remember the true God that they were always called to worship. But the plagues also do something else for Israel. They enable them to realize that Moses and Aaron are actually not false prophets. Remember what happened in Exodus chapter 5. Moses and Aaron had gone before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh had gone, I'm not going to do that. It makes their slavery even worse. And up until this point, all of Israel thinks Moses and Aaron are false prophets. They don't really speak on behalf of Yahweh. The plagues demonstrate to all of the Israelites that Moses and Aaron are actually speaking on the mouthpiece of God, that they are true representatives of Yahweh and that they should follow them. So the plagues actually work as a uniting movement for Israel around the leadership of Moses and Aaron, something that is critical for everything that's going to happen next in the story. But what about for Moses? What does Moses learn? Well, Moses learns that despite the fact that he has been raised as a prince of Egypt, and despite the fact that he would have been incredibly talented in knowing how to worship the variety of gods in Egypt, and despite the fact that he'd had 40 years in the wilderness, he was still carrying some of the residue of that identity. And the plagues was God's disruptive way to once and for all say to Moses, you have to let that stuff go. See, one of the things that Moses discovers is, I think, a central story of the whole of the Exodus journey. And it's this, that the call to let my people go was not just a call to Egypt about releasing God's people from their slavery. It was actually a call to Israel about releasing themselves from their idolatry. Come on, church. This is actually what the plagues are about for Israel. God is saying, there are idols that you're holding in your hearts, and I'm demonstrating to you that I'm only the one true God. And you getting out of Egypt is only half the battle. The other part of the battle is you letting go of Egypt. You letting go of the idolatry that you have become accustomed to, because I just want you. 
And Moses sees in the plagues the the disgusting reality of the idolatry of his people. And in that, a longing is birthed within Israel to have a pure relationship with God again. And all of that is critical for them to move into the wilderness and meet with God at Mount Sinai. But as I close, everybody's favorite words in a sermon, what is it that you learn through all of this? What is it that you can take away and reflect around? What is it that changes in your life because of the plagues? Well, first of all, I think the plagues help us to understand that despite how it might look at times, God is at work behind the scenes in the corridors of power in this world. That God is the one who's ultimately in control. He is the one who is ultimately has the authority on heaven and on earth. And sometimes it's easy for us to look at the way things are in terms of the power structures of this world. It's easier for us to look at the ones who govern us or lead us and think that, that, that there's no way that anything good could ever come of that. And what the plague narrative reminds us is that ultimately God is in control of everything that happens in the world. And that God brings signs and wonders at times to bring his world back into relationship with him. And that should encourage us. We should see the plagues and have faith rise in us that God will always hold governments to account for how they govern their people. That God will always work towards justice in this world. And as his people, we get the opportunity to lean into that with our prayers, lean into that with our trust, lean into that and say, even though I don't see how this election is going to happen or how this is going to work or how this is going to happen or or how this injustice is going to change, I believe that God is not blind to it. I believe that God cares about it. I believe that God is involved in it and he's doing stuff that I don't even understand. I don't even see. And my role is just to come alongside, to pray, to believe, to stand, to speak, to be his voice and his mouthpiece because he's a God of justice and he's at work. And the call should be on the church to rise up and say that we believe that God is at work, even when it feels like the opposite. The second thing I think you can take away is the knowledge that God is at war against the idols that are in your life. God is at war against anything that will take your heart away from him. Anything that will distract you and hold you hostile to God's good purposes in your life. God has an unrelenting passion to see freedom come for his people. And I want you to hear this. God is not just interested in your freedom. He also wants your heart. And for God, if he doesn't get your whole heart, then you will never truly be free. See, the purpose of the Exodus is not to get you out of some bad stuff that's happened to you in the past. It's not just about freeing you from some chains that are around you. The point of the Exodus and the point brought to us through the power of the plagues is that God doesn't want to just draw you out. He wants to draw you in. He wants to engage with you, be in relationship with you, know you more. He wants your heart not not split. Between all these different things, he wants your whole heart because it's only in your wholehearted devotion of him, your wholehearted worship of him, that you'll ever find yourself truly free and therefore find yourself in harmony, in shalom, with the way that you've always been created to be. Does that make sense to you? God is passionate, not just about your freedom, 
but about where your heart is. And any time that our hearts are connected to idols, we're not truly free. Which is the third and final thing I think you should take away with you. And this should encourage you deeply. God stands powerfully against every demonic force in this world. Yeah, like if, if you, I mean, if there's anything you take away from today, may it be that whatever strategy that the enemy has over you, your family, your marriage, you yourself, whatever it might be, God is at work right here, right now, fighting against the demonic forces of this world. And that's ultimately seen, of course, in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's ultimately seen in the blood that is shed in Jesus, which we're going to talk about next week, and you're going to see the power in that. But before we get to next week, know in this moment that God stands against every demonic realm and every demonic force, and he stands about it against it, and he says, let my people go. And I wonder whether you could hear the the resonance of God's voice over you and over your life where he stands against any principality and any darkness that's trying to have any influence over you, your kids, your family, whatever it might be. And he's standing and he's saying to those things, let this person go, let this one go because this one is my child. And God has an unrelenting, unbridled fury of love for you and your freedom. And he will bring that against any pretense to authority and power with such fury, a fury passioned by love, not by wrath, but by love to stand with you and say, I will do these things for you, over you, where you're not even realizing it, whilst you sleep and behind the scenes, because I want you free. And there is no weapon formed against you that will prosper. The plagues are God's way of saying to his people, there is no weapon formed against you. That will prosper. And if there's anything you take from today, may it be a sense of the fighting power of God on your behalf. And I want you to feel it. I want you to see it. The plagues are not nice. They're not easy. They raise big questions. They're a fireball of the fury of God's love for his creation. A fireball that stands against any other pretense to worship. Any other system that would say there's another way. Any other Satan that speaks to Adam and Eve and says, take this fruit because this is better. God's plagues are a picture to us of this unrelenting fire that God has to say the way that I have created, the way that I am is the only way to true peace for you. And, And he wants you. To know him that way. To know that you're protected, fought for, redeemed, saved, and set free. And that passion, I want you to feel now. To help you with that, take a look at this. Let my people go. His words are fire, breaking and burning fuming hardened with the fury of heaven. Stars become snakes, snakes become slaves, dressed in the chains of tomorrow's grave. The power of fear, blood in the water, stank of injustice now torn from another. Skies become flies, flies become hail, hammering the hardened with the holiest of nails. 
stretching of hands, rage from the heavens, darkness descended, darkness descended, now blood on the doorpost, an angel of death, the horror of genocide, not far from our lips, a heaven of fury, burning and breaking, the hardened, consumed with words, still shaking, let my people go. That's how he feels for you. I wonder whether you just open your hands. Come, Holy Spirit. You are loved, accepted, fought for. God has sent his son to the cross stand in the place where you should have stood and with the fury of love cast sin upon him so you would know true life and you now stand more than a conqueror and whatever idol or idols that are present in your heart The forgiveness and the mercy of God is like what we just witnessed. And it can be uncomfortable at times. And I know firsthand that God has sent me signs and wonders to bring me to repentance. And God brings his justice. And I pray that you would through this understanding of the plagues today. Leave this place knowing the price that has been paid, but also the power that there is that stands alongside of you. That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now in you. That same power, that same love, that same authority, it's in you. And although the plagues are uncomfortable and they raise lots of questions that we have to wrestle with, ultimately seen through the lens that the storyteller provides for us, they are an invitation to less of our idols and more of God. And I pray in this moment and in the moments ahead for you this week, that you would continue to make that exchange by simply coming before him and saying the one powerful prayer in scripture that the whole Bible ends with. It's Maranatha. It means, come Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray for anyone here who needs to lay down idols. You would show them how to do that. And I pray every person here would invite more of you into their lives. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name. We love you guys so much. 
If you want to stay and just talk with the people around you, uh, pray with someone, pray with our team. We have a team upstairs and down here. You can pray. Um, if you need to go, please be respectful of the people around you. Totally free to go, but just be respectful to the people around you. Quietly leave. We've got books available. The Exodus Volume 2 books are outside if you want to take more of those home with you. But however it is that you ought to respond, we invite you to do that. And we'll see you guys back next week.